have you come back. Please, sir. We've done what you told us. We brought you the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. We melted her. Oh, you liquidated her, eh? Very resourceful. Yes, sir. So we'd like you to keep your promise to us, if you please, sir. Not so fast. Not so fast. I'll have to give the matter a little thought. Go away and come back tomorrow. Tomorrow? Oh, but I want to go home now. You've had plenty of time already. Yeah. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. I said come back tomorrow. If you are really great and powerful, you'll keep your promises. Do you presume to criticize the great Oz? You ungrateful creatures think yourselves lucky that I'm giving you audience tomorrow instead of 20 years from now. Oh. The great Oz has spoken. Oh. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great Oz has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. You are? Uh, I uh, don't believe you. No, I'm afraid it's true. There's no other wizard except me. You humbug! Yeah. Uh, yes, it's exactly so. I'm a humbug. Oh, you're a very bad man. Oh, no, my dear. I, I'm a very good man. I'm just a very bad wizard. Well, I can recall, and maybe you can too, the first time I saw The Wizard of Oz. Uh, back in the day, we watched it on TV with commercials, <laughs> which made it like five hours long. I don't know. But I remember thinking, this is a great movie. This is, this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. And also, also one of the scariest, because flying monkeys, people, I still cannot watch that part of this movie with my eyes open. Flying monkeys. Uh, well, Dorothy and her band of friends had assumed for the whole movie, the whole time, that the great and powerful Wizard of Oz is the one who can fix all of their problems, who can grant all of their wishes, a brain, a heart, courage, a way home. But when they finally have the chance to meet him face to face, he is not a great wizard after all. He is just a man. And this infuriates the band of friends, especially Dorothy, who has been counting on there being a higher power who could fix everything. If you were really a great wizard, she says, you would keep your promises. If there is a higher power behind this strange and beautiful kingdom of Oz, why doesn't he do something about all the problems that we have here? all the wishes we've made, all of our needs. In other words, if there is a God, why do bad things happen? And why doesn't he do something about it? I mean, to be human is to wrestle with that question at one point or another. To be in ministry is to help other people wrestle with that question because at one point or another, everyone asks it. You can open a history book or your Facebook page you can scroll through the news, and there it is, this question. Everything from Sandy Hook to 
from hurricanes close to home to flooding in India to earthquakes in Indonesia. What in the world is going on at the control panel of the universe? I mean, who is running this show anyway? And if we believe, which we do, that there is an all-loving, all-powerful God behind the curtain of the universe, why do bad things continue to happen? The story that Guy read a portion of for us this morning doesn't exactly ask this question, and I think it doesn't ask it because a woman Naomi, named Naomi has already answered the question for us. Naomi's sad story opens when she and her family become refugees, when their little town of Bethlehem is hit by famine, and so they have to move away to neighboring Moab to survive. And instead of life getting better when they escape the famine, it just gets worse. Naomi's tragic life is torn apart by the loss of her husband and her two adult sons. And then one of her daughters-in-law returns home to her family to start over, and her other daughter-in-law, Ruth, who evidently steals the show and gets the book named after her, <laughs> she stays with her mother-in-law, and she gives one of the most beautiful speeches of covenant love in all of Scripture. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And so the women embrace, and Ruth makes a leap of faith. She travels back home with Naomi to find her help, a way to live in what would have been difficult, really almost impossible times for two widows trying to make it on their own. And let me just stop and say, if this has not been made into a Lifetime original movie yet, why not? <laughs> I mean, it has everything. It's got heartbreak and tragedy. It's got loyalty, two women alone in the world supporting each other. Somebody call Oprah and get this story on TV. <laughs> and these, these beautiful words of Ruth, these are some of the most famous words of poetry of the Old Testament. But they're followed very quickly by some of the harshest words of the Old Testament, and these words come from Naomi herself. As they reach her hometown, Bethlehem, the wound of Naomi's grief is opened again. She left there, although with her stomach empty, with her family full, full of a husband and two sons, and now she has to return home without them. And so she must be walking into the streets of Bethlehem, encountering for the first time the place where she and her husband first met, the spot where they were first married, the home where her boys were born, where they grew up, the friends full of questions. What has happened? Why do you return home alone? Her friends' own children, strong and living. All of this is like salt in Naomi's wounds. She is destitute and alone except for her faithful daughter-in-law. And Ruth chapter 1 tells us what happens when they hit the edge of town. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? And instead of asking, instead of that question popping up, why do bad things happen? Naomi has an answer. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara 
because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? For the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Do you hear the subject of each of those sentences? Who has afflicted her? Who has brought her misfortune? She names God as the actor four times in these short two verses as the perpetrator of her pain. She names God as the cause of her misfortune. When tragedy strikes, God, God often gets the blame. It's easy to point a finger at someone who's invisible. There's no judgment on Naomi's blame in this story. It's simply a recounting of a deep grief in a human being, one who is crying out in pain and anger. Now, the story does not necessarily say that Naomi's words are true, but it also doesn't take away her right to say them. Lament can be worship. The Psalms themselves are full of people lamenting hard things that have happened and asking God why, pointing a finger even at him. But I'd like to point out, instead of that question and Naomi's answer, another question that I think lurks behind the scenes in the book of Ruth. And it's a question that may be even more enduring and possibly more important than the question of why bad things happen. You see, just a few verses after Naomi's scathing critique of God, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, goes out to a stranger's field to, to gather grain. She's determined to find a way to support the two of them. And here, here is the first point where the curtain is drawn back a bit. And we're given a glimpse into the inner workings of the kingdom. Ruth chapter 2 verse 3 begins this way. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose sight I might find favor. She said to her, go, my daughter. So she went. She came and gleaned in the field behind the reapers. As it happened, she came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Look at that phrase. As it happened. As it happened, Ruth ended up in the field of the person who could save Ruth and Naomi from destitution, from starvation, from vulnerability to harm, as it happened. And here's some of the ways that as it happened could have been translated. As it happened, as it turned out, now she just happened to end up. Um, scholar Robert Hubbard says the emphasis on chance is so embedded in both the noun and the verb that it could have been translated twice. Her chance chanced upon the field. Or he says a more modern translation would probably be as luck would have it. In another of the great classic American movies, Casablanca, there's a classic line, of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. Seriously, of all the fields in all of Israel, Ruth happens upon the field of the one man who can help Ruth and Naomi from their destitute state who can restore them to life and prosperity and protection. Do you really think her chance chanced upon that field? Do you, do you get the impression that luck is the agent behind this story? This emphasis on luck is so powerful and chance so strong that you can almost feel the narrator tugging on your sleeve, right? Right? 
wink, wink, nudge, nudge, as luck would have it. Yeah, right, luck. There's a feeling here of almost sheer ridiculousness that we would point to chance when this amazing event happens. Was it luck and chance that we're working for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose? So here's the question, I think, instead of the one that so many people focus on about why bad things happen. Here's the question for those who want to peek behind the curtain for the control panel of the universe, and it's this, why, why do good things happen? If there is no great and giving being at the control panels, why do such great beauty and gifts and joy abound in our world? Sometimes the question of theodicy, that issue of why bad things happen, is called the problem of pain. As in, if God is so good, why is there pain in the world? But there's an even greater question in the problem of pleasure. See, there, there's no real reason for life to be so full of pleasure, of joy, of incredible blessing. There is no reason for food to taste as good as it does. I'm looking at you, tacos, you know? <laughs> there is no natural reason for the faces of our loved ones to bring us as much joy as they do. There's no reason for mountain ranges to display such natural majestic beauty. No reason for the laughter of children to cause our hearts to sing. This is no luck. Think about your own story. As luck would have it, really? There is no chance, no luck that could bring about the constellation of blessings that brought you here to Asbury Seminary. Those little points of light that you finally connected into a message, a calling, a greater purpose, until you finally connected the dots and read the constellation of your story. Why is it in Naomi's story that when things go wrong, God gets the blame? But when thing goes well, things go well, luck steals the credit. We could ask that about our own stories as well. I could ask it about mine. How many times when difficult things happen do we question where God is in the midst of them? But when beautiful moments cross our paths, wonderful people, incredible things, do we just think, well, that was lucky? At some point, even Naomi begins to get a clue here. The blessings that follow her grief are just till so overwhelming until finally a light bulb goes off in her mind. Now, not only has Ruth ended up in the field of Boaz, a man closely related to their family, not only is Boaz a relative, he's a godly man who shows up in the field with the greeting, the Lord be with you. Not only is Boaz a godly man, he's a man whose faith affects his practice of hospitality, calling Ruth the outsider here in to have water and food with his own workers and then instructing his field hands not once but twice not to lay a hand on her as she follows in the fields. An instruction that saved Ruth from certain harassment and possible assault as a stranger, a foreigner, and a woman without anyone's protection wandering in those fields alone. 
Not only is Boaz willing to notice and protect the vulnerable among them, he is willing to take less for himself in order that she and Naomi can have enough to survive, telling his workers to leave behind a little extra so that Ruth can glean a great deal more than was ever expected. And so when she walks in the door that night to Naomi's surprise, having been fed and given water, having received kindness and not harassment in the field, and with a load full of grain, and with the information about Boaz's identity as their kinsman redeemer, even Naomi cannot deny it. Even Naomi can't just say, well, as luck would have it, that was a good day. When Naomi realizes that Ruth has ended up in the exact right place at the exact right moment, when she sees the plot twist in her own story that is turned for the better, she exclaims, Ruth chapter 2, verse 20, The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He, the Lord, has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Even Naomi, the one who once changed her name to Bitter, finally gets it. And what has broken her down? What is the thing she cannot help but notice? It's kindness. It's not just any kindness. It's chesed. Got to get a good Hebrew hairball going to say the word chesed in chapel. And the Hebrew word said is one of God's most central characteristics. This kindness, said is faithful love in action. said is God's loving kindness expressed in his covenant relationship with his people. said is persistent and unconditional tenderness, kindness, and mercy. And said is, is no accident. It is not luck that is behind it. It is a personal trait. And behind a personal trait is a person. Behind the curtain of the universe is a person liberally pouring out loving kindness, goodness, and mercy into the lives of people, even when it looks like every good and perfect gift might be a complete coincidence. It indeed comes from the Father above. And here's the thing about said: It is an unchanging, undying character trait of God, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, no matter what else is going on in our lives. In a chaotic and uncertain world where famines come even to Bethlehem, the house of bread, where husbands and sons die, where earthquakes happen, where tragedy strikes, even here, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Goodness and mercy, they don't merely follow us all the days of our lives. They're not a little dog that prances around following behind us. Goodness and mercy chase after us all the days of our lives. That is has said. It's so much easier sometimes to shake a fist at God and ask about the problem of pain over and over than it is to recognize him in the quiet, undercover whisper of the problem of pleasure. Hesed shows up in the book of Ruth in God's undercover action, almost like an artist who doesn't sign his work. 
And I don't know about you, but this is a lot more the way God shows up in my own life than in a burning bush or a savior walking on the water towards me. God's presence is often quieter and more hidden. It forces me to get still and listen, to look more carefully. It makes me ask the question again and again, God, is that you? Hesed also shows up in the book of Ruth in the actions of faithful people showing covenant love, not just feeling kind, but doing kindness. And, and you could say, there's one way to look at this story, to say that Boaz is the hero on the white horse of this story. But if he's on any kind of horse at all, it's because Ruth found the horse. She saddled it and fed it, gave him a leg up and handed him the reins. In a book where God works undercover, it's a bit shocking that the main undercover agent is a statusless foreign widow, a refugee. Ruth, Ruth is such an unlikely agent of God, but then again, aren't we all? If you jump back two books, one of the last unlikely persons in the Bible before Ruth and Naomi to use the word hesed, back in the book of Joshua is the prostitute Rahab. The 12 spies of Israel have crept into the promised land looking for a place to hide safely. And it seems that the only place that 12 men can hide without turning heads is a brothel. So they meet Rahab the prostitute. And Rahab promises safety to these spies as long as they promise kindness, has said, to her and her family when they return as conquerors. Swear to me, she says, swear to me that you will show chesed to my family, for I have shown chesed to you. The kindness of God comes from unlikely undercover agents, even prostitutes hiding people in the promised land. And if you read this story in a way that you're amazed at Boaz's treatment of Ruth, this man of status and property, honoring and eventually marrying this outsider, widowed refugee, if you're surprised at his reaction, then you may have skipped this day in Dr. Bauer's IBS Matthew class, the Bauer Hour of Power, on the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Who is Boaz? Who does he belong to? He's Rahab's boy. Rahab is his mother. A marginalized woman is Boaz's mother. And when Boaz first spots Ruth in the field, sees her, the first question he asks is this. Who does she belong to? That question offends me. It rings in my ears like the question, who gives this woman away to be married? It smacks of property, not personhood. Who does she belong to? Belong to. But, but this question is appropriate for their culture. Who's looking out for her? Who's protecting her? Whose household does she belong in? Who will make sure that she's okay at the end of the day? Who does she belong to? And Ruth's actions over the course of this story make the answer to that question very clear. Who does she belong to? 
She belongs to Yahweh. She belongs to the living God. She is to be treated with dignity and respect. And Boaz acts in a way towards her as if he knows the answer to this question. Maybe his mother whispered it in his ears when he was a small child. He looks at a statusless, widowed refugee who could have been harassed and abused and assaulted in the fields, and he says this, no one touch her. No one lay a hand on her. She belongs to Yahweh. We could use a lot more Boazes in our day. May his number increase. Hesed can be a gift not just for the vulnerable, but especially in this story, a gift from the vulnerable, a gift from the downtrodden and the outcast. And when you find it there, it is almost certainly God at work. A, a friend of mine who is a pastor back in Texas took her preschool daughter trick-or-treating one Halloween. When they had covered the whole neighborhood and were on their way home, their daughter insisted that they go and visit their other friends. What other friends, they said. The people who have no houses, the little girl answered. Um, you see, there was a community of homeless people near their church, and they had visited them before with food and blankets in the past, taking their daughter along on those visits. And this Halloween, she wanted to go back and see them. And they, they explained to her, they tried to tell her that the friends with no houses would not have any candy for her. But she insisted, and if you know the iron will of a four-year-old, <laughs> then you are not surprised that they went. And then when they arrived, she went from person to person, taking her bucket along and giving them each a piece of candy, emptying her own bucket as she went. Hesed, the unchanging kindness of God, it can come through human hands. And when it does, when it's a gift from the vulnerable, from the weak and the downtrodden, from a prostitute with no status, from a foreign widow with no resources, from a little girl in a costume, when it comes from the unlikely sources, pay attention because you are probably getting a glimpse behind the curtain of the universe. And God never intended to hide himself behind a curtain. He was always revealing himself to us. But that revelation was far more undercover than we ever expected from someone so powerful and so divine and so grand. And in the end, it was no little dog who pulled back that curtain to reveal to us who was behind it. That curtain of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom. It was God's action, God's revelation, God showing us in Jesus Christ who he was in the flesh on the cross at the resurrection, and what was revealed there, what is still being revealed to us at this table today, is far more vulnerable and more powerful than we ever imagined. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, love, has said, amen.